want to welcome you today. If you're here for the first time, I can see many new faces. Uh, you're probably wondering what 128 is about. It is a group uh, of single adults at this church and from other churches that come to spend this evening with us. And our goal for this group is that we would proclaim Christ and that with all wisdom we would admonish and teach everyone so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. If you don't know Christ, our goal is to introduce you to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know him, then our goal is to see you grow in your faith from just like newborn babes to mature Christians. That is our goal for each one of us, including ourselves. We are studying to the book of Genesis, and today we find ourselves in chapter 15 as we think about verse 7 to verse 21. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. You know, in our world, getting in and out of an agreement or a contract is a fairly common practice. Small and large businesses routinely get into and get out of contracts. If you're living in a house, you are party to a contract if you're still under mortgage. If you have a place that you have rented, you're a party to a contract. If you're sharing an apartment with someone, there may not always be a formal agreement in place, but there is an implicit agreement in place. Formally speaking, a contract is an agreement between parties that creates mutual obligations that are enforceable by, by law. That is what a contract is. You know, some of the basic elements of what a contract is uh, for something like this to be uh, legally enforceable is... For example, it has to be mutually agreed. Both the parties need to agree to the terms of the contract. Uh, there has to be a valid offer and an acceptance of that offer. Uh, there is a promise that is involved in every contract. Uh, the legality of purpose is required. Uh, there has to be an ability to fulfill the promise. Uh, a contract also specifies as to what happens if one or both parties fail to perform their part of the contract? What if there is a breach in the contract? And once all of those details are worked out, a contract then is signed by both parties, or more if there are more involved. The signing is an official agreement of the party to the, to the contract. And once signed, the contract is then enforced. Essentially then, a contract is a promise that the law will enforce. You know, while a contract and stipulations in the contract are enforceable by law, a covenant, on the other hand, builds on that concept, but there are far more significant and spiritual implications in a covenant. In a contract, for example, a breach or a failure to perform is covered by a penalty. You don't pay up for a mortgage in a certain month, your interest rates might go up, but a breach in a covenant is a betrayal of trust and even considered immoral. There are spiritual consequences that are involved. You know, the term contract is generally not used when we think of God because he is the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. And there are promises made in a contract and a covenant. The consequences of not keeping a promise in a covenant are far more significant and earth-shattering. And so when, as we come to our passage today, we will observe in uh, layman's terms 
a covenant signing ceremony. A covenant signing ceremony. It is where the promises are made and sealed. That's why I've titled our lesson for today, The Promise Sealed. The Promise Sealed, as we consider verse 7 to verse 21. The Promise Sealed. Notice with me, first of all, verse 7 and verse 8. And he, that is God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Uh, First of all, you see a plea for a sign. You know, last time we met, we saw Abraham as someone who was reckoned as righteous. He was justified because righteousness was applied to him. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. That passage focused on the descendants of Abraham, while this one that we will get into focuses on the land portion of the promise. We see then a plea for a sign. Uh, The plea from Abraham itself is in response to the Lord's self-revelation and action. You see, the text begins this way, and he, that is God, said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. That language is strikingly similar to the language that the Lord uses later on when he delivers the Israelites from the Egyptians and is about to give them 10 commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Very similar language. We notice then, first of all, the identity of the one who is making the promise. The word there for God is the word Lord. It's in all caps. It's the covenantal name of God. Uh, The word there is Yahweh. I am Yahweh. Uh, That is the one who has always existed. Uh, That particular name for God is used in the context of his relationship with Israel as a nation. It's a covenantal name in that sense. The word means the one who is self-existing and self-sufficient God. While all else in this world is dependent on him for life and breath and for their very existence, he is dependent on no one. He has always existed, and he alone is one who is truly independent. He is the Lord. That is his identity. That is who he is. But what has he done? Notice the second portion of verse 7. He has brought Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. It's a reminder to Abraham of where he was. It's a reminder to Abraham of what his condition was before the Lord called him. You see, he, along with his fathers and forefathers, was worshiping idols and and the planets and the moons, along with his fathers. He was an idol worshiper, worshiping created things rather than the creator. We find that in Joshua 24 too. We don't have to turn there, but that's what he was doing. Then what purpose was he called, notice at the end of verse 7, to be given the land that that he was in to possess it? He was called so that the Lord would give him land. But we have to remember that the covenant with Abraham had three main features to it. We saw that in chapter 12 when we looked at it, all of which are mentioned in Genesis 12. Uh, There is the promise of the land. There is the promise of descendants. And there is the promise of spiritual blessings. 
land, descendants, and spiritual blessings. You will be a blessing, Abraham, and through, all the through you all the nations will be blessed. Land, descendants, and spiritual blessings. The earlier section, that is chapter 1, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 to 6, in, uh, uh, focuses on the descendants, while this section focuses on the land portion of the covenant. Notice it begins in verse 7 with the Lord mentioning about the land. And if you go to the end of the chapter, verse 18, which is the last section in that chapter, the Lord says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. And this whole section then is talking about the land promises to Abraham. To the mention of the word land, notice what Abraham does. He says in verse 8, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? How will I know that, Lord? You see, he's pleading for a sign. Now, there are others in the scriptures who have also pled for a sign. Um, we think of Gideon, for example, in Judges chapter 6, who pleaded for a sign. He wanted to be sure that it was the Lord who was speaking to him. And so the Lord uh, agrees to show him a sign and responds to him that way. But there's also the story of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, when he pleaded for a sign. And in his question to the angel, there was a doubt expressed. There was unbelief that was displayed. And so the angel Gabriel muted him until the son was actually born to him and Elizabeth. But there's no such a response to Abraham's request here. And so we know that Abraham is actually neither expressing doubt or unbelief, but he's merely asking for a sign. How will I know, Lord, that I will have it? Lord, I believe you, I trust you, but how will I know that I will possess this land? You know, the rest of the passage, verse 9 to verse 21, is a response to that question. I want you to do something, Abraham, so that you will know that you will possess the land. Now, before we consider the Lord's response starting in verse 9, I think it's appropriate to stop here and ask ourselves, it is, is it ever appropriate to ask for a sign from God? Is it ever appropriate to say, Lord, give me a sign for such and such a thing? Perhaps more relevant to our group, Lord, I don't know if such and such a person is for me or I am for them. Lord, would you show me? Now, signs or indications are presented in the scriptures both in a positive and a negative light. I've given both examples before. Let me say this. If we ask for a sign with an intention to put God to the test, that is, that we demand that God jump through our hoops, then it is clearly a sin. We're putting God to the test, and we must not put God to the test, Deuteronomy 6, 16. But... If we are genuinely struggling in an area of conscience, that is a decision where the scripture does not prohibit or support something clearly, it is appropriate to ask God in prayer to make his will clear to us and then leave it at that. Leave it to the Lord to answer as, he seems, as it seems fit to him. Now, of course, we are always to remember that God has given us everything we need to know uh, everything we need to know him and to grow in our relationship and our faith in him through his word. And the scriptures are sufficient for our salvation and for our sanctification. And so what does the Lord ask of Abraham? Notice verse 9 and verse 
10. The Lord says to Abram, as we think of this section, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so he brought them to him, it says, and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Uh, Secondly, we see then the presentation of a sacrifice. The presentation of a sacrifice. He did exactly as the Lord commanded him to do. Remember, we are not at a stage yet where we are in the sacrificial system that was introduced in the life of Israel as a nation. That came only later on as we enter into Exodus and Leviticus and so on. But there was a general understanding in the culture and a cultural tradition and practice for such a system as we find here in this chapter. Uh, Two parties entering into a covenantal agreement solemnized such a promise, put a final seal or signed it by, by, by killing an animal. And that's how it was solemnized. That's how it was sealed. They would kill the animal and then divide it into two and arrange the halves in such a way that the two covenanting parties, in in this case it would be God and Abraham, could walk between the sundered body of the animal. What did they do? They killed the animal, split it into half, and the, the two covenantal parties would then walk through the two halves. What, what, what was such a ceremony displaying? You see, this, such a ceremony dramatized a self-imposed curse should either of the covenantal parties break the promise. In other words, what the covenantal parties or covenanting parties were saying was that if I break my part of the agreement, then may I become like the severed animal that lies in front of me. Now, we have an example of this in the scriptures itself. So let us let scriptures interpret scriptures. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 17 to verse 20. Jeremiah, as you know, was a prophet. And what, as you're turning there, let me give you some context. Here we see that when the leaders of Jerusalem proclaimed that they would be uh, freeing their slaves, but then they did not fulfill that promise, and went back on their word, they broke that promise. And so Jeremiah speaks on behalf of the Lord to such leaders of Jerusalem. Notice verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine, and I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. What is verse 18? I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant, which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. This was a serious, serious stuff. They will die, in other words, as the animals have died. Because they didn't keep their end of the promise. 
Uh, this was not just a contract that two parties sign, and then when there is a breach, pay the penalty and move on. No, there is far more involved in a biblical covenant. Let me give you an example. You know, marriage in the world that we live in is commonly understood as a contract. Our two parties get into an agreement, and when there is a breach, or when one party no longer has feelings for another, no longer feels that they love the other party, the contract is broken. Our penalties are paid, and then they move on. But that's not how God views marriage. Marriage, according to the Bible, is a covenant. You don't have to turn there, but in Proverbs chapter 2, that word is found. You know, as a father advises and guides his son not to get anywhere near an adulterous woman, he says this, be wise, son, which is verse 1 to verse 15, summarizing that. And then in verse 16 of chapter 2, it says, to deliver you, that is, wisdom will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. When someone commits adultery, they are breaking a covenant, not merely a contract. You see, a far more significant thing is taking place in marriage than the secular world recognizes or the godless world recognizes. There is a covenantal agreement. And the implications of breaking such a covenant are monumental. You know, one of the consistent comments that I received from divorced couples is how, when they were going through it, that they literally felt that their heart was torn in two. A covenant, then, is a serious thing. The question is, is this the end of the sealing ceremony? The answer is no. There is suffering before there is glory. There are challenges and difficulties before the promise comes to fruition. And so, therefore, we turn, thirdly, to a prophecy for suffering, a prophecy of suffering. Notice verse 11 to verse 16. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions." As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And notice a few things in this section. In verse 11, we are told that the birds of prey began to come down on the dead animals to, to feed on them. Now that is the picture of the attacks that would come on Abraham and his descendants from nations before they possess the land. And just like in this case, Abraham drives these birds away, he and his descendants, with the help of the Lord, will drive the attackers away. And as long as Abraham and his descendants depend on the Lord and rely on the Lord for help and protection, they will be helped and protected. But as soon as they think highly of themselves and depend on their own strength, they will be overpowered. A picture of an attack of the surrounding nations before they possess the land. But notice in verse 12, 
almost a day has passed since verse 7. Because now we are told that when the sun was going down, the initial conversation that took place between Abraham and God, and then the sacrifices itself that we saw in verse 9 and 10, uh, perhaps took the bulk of the previous of the current day. And perhaps Abraham was tired as he was waiting for the Lord's instructions. And this tiredness led to Abraham uh, entering into a deep sleep. You see, in a covenant that was to be solemnized, Abraham, who's one of the two parties, is not even conscious. He's asleep. That is how one-sided and unilateral this covenant was. Even in the sleep, though, there was a consciousness of what was happening. We may very well have a vision until the end of verse 16 here. Therefore, at the end of verse 12, it says, And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. You know, this is the one time that Abraham experiences fear in the presence of the Lord. One commentator writes, The Hebrew word for terror is the word emma, which we have translated as frightening, reflects a human emotion that is inspired most often by Yahweh's presence. You see, the more you understand and the more you know God, the God of the Bible, the more you become aware of your own sin. The more you spend time in God's word, the more you're becoming like him and the more aware you are of your own sin. Because you're in the presence of one who is perfectly holy and righteous. Text tells us that there was great, there was terror and great darkness upon Abraham. Notice a few things as we consider from verse 13 to 16. We are told at least six things by God about this particular promise. First of all, we are told that Abraham's descendants will be in a foreign land. I've, I've put references where those promises are fulfilled so you can check out later on if you would like. We know that this foreign land is none other than the land of Egypt. And we find out in Genesis 37 that Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, enters first into Egypt in Genesis 37. And then we find in Genesis 46 that Jacob and the rest of the family follows him in, in chapter 46. Secondly, we are told that they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. That is four generations. Now you might ask yourself, don't we read some other figures in other places? Well, it depends on how they are calculated. So, for example, in Galatians 3.17, Paul says it was 430 years. In Acts chapter 13, we are told that it was 450 years. And here, and then in um, uh, Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin in chapter 7 of Acts, we are told it's 400 years. So which is it? Well, if you calculate it from Jacob moving from Israel until the Exodus, it's 430 years. If you calculate it from the Israelites being enslaved until, they conquest, until the conquest of the promised land, it's 450 years. And if you ca calculate it from when they were enslaved until the Exodus, it's 400 years. So there is no contradiction. But notice all of those prophecies were fulfilled. And I've mentioned the references in our text for us. Thirdly, it says God will judge this foreign land. We see that fulfilled in chapter 7 to chapter 12 of Exodus. Uh, this was a prophecy that came true. 
there were 10 plagues, remember, in total that were unleashed on Egypt. Each of those plagues represented an attack and resulted in a humiliating defeat of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. The judgment itself was devastating and it ended, remember, when the firstborn of all the Egyptians died. From the firstborn of the slave girl to the firstborn of Pharaoh's family, all the firstborn were killed. Even the firstborn of the cattle were not spared in Egypt. So how do the Egyptians respond to such a judgment? Fourthly, we are told Abraham's descendants will come out of Egypt with many possessions. We see that fulfilled in Exodus 12, verse 33 to 36. You see the Israelites, as they were leaving Egypt, they requested the Egyptians for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord gave these people favor in the sight of Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Uh, thus they plundered the Egyptians, the text tells us, verse 36 of chapter 12 of Exodus. Uh, fifthly, we are told Abraham will die in a good old age. And that also was fulfilled in Genesis 24:8, where, where we see his death being recorded. All of this to say that Abraham, you will not see any of these events in your lifetime, you will die at a good old age. You will not experience these events yourself. You will be spared of these turbulent times that your descendants will face. Now you see, death and the events after death was not a concept that was fully developed during this time. It was assumed that once you die, you just join your ancestors. But notice the specific and individual promise to Abraham. You will go to your fathers in peace. You will come to the end of your life with a sense of contentment and fulfillment. That's what the text is saying. Can I stop here for a second and remind us that a fulfilled and a life that is displaying contentment is not only true of Abraham's life, but it is true of all who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that true? Because a truly fulfilled life and a life marked by contentment is a life that is rightly related to God to whom all of us must one day give an account. You see, unless you are right with God, you will never be fulfilled nor content at your death because you have not settled your account with God. And so the only way to be at peace is to make peace with God through his son. Abraham will die in a good old age. Sixthly, God is abundantly merciful and patient. God is abundantly merciful and patient. This is a very, very striking phrase. Your descendants will return to this land in the fourth generation. But why wait until the fourth generation? Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Verse 16. You see, the Amorites represented all the groups that were occupying the land that God had given to Abraham and his descendants. In grammar, we'll call this, we call this a synecdoche, that is a part representing the whole. Uh, the iniquity of the Amorites means the sins of the Amorites. It was not yet complete means it had not yet reached a stage where God deemed it fit to judge them yet. But in the fourth generation, fourth generation from Jacob, it will have reached a level 
after which God will then unleash his judgment on them through Joshua and his men. Now, this is a striking statement for many reasons. You know, the God of the Bible is not a God who acts in a whimsical way. He does not act or behave in a capricious manner. He's not arbitrary uh, and one without any standards. He acts according to his character. For four generations, he waited and waited patiently for the sins and the iniquities of the Amorites to reach a certain level. What does that tell us about God's character then? It tells us that he is a patient and a merciful God. He is abundantly merciful. Let me draw two quick applications before we move forward, perhaps three if we have time. Uh, First of all, for us as a nation, has America reached a stage as a nation where our iniquities are complete? You know, I'm not a prophet, and neither am I a son of a prophet to give an answer to that question, but I don't think you will disagree with me when I say we are not far off. We're not far off. You know, when as a culture, we find it difficult to differentiate between a male and a female, I would say we are playing with the patience of God. When a man claims to be a woman and a woman claims to be a man, we are dangerously close to testifying or testing the patience of God. When we redefine the sacred relationship of marriage to mean whatever we want it to mean, we are toying with the patience of God. See, when we kill a baby in its mother's womb and outside the womb and call it freedom, we are mocking God and inviting his judgment to come quickly. But let's set aside our nation and apply this to ourselves. Perhaps you are here and you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that God has brought you here today so that you would hear this good news and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That is God's desire for you. You do not know when your time will be up and when you will face your creator as your judge. Uh, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Trust him before it's too late. Run to him and he will receive you. If you've placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a believer, you are a child of God. Uh, Perhaps you're here and you're going through difficult times. There are many, many things and many, many passages that I would draw your attention to. But there's one poem that comes to my mind as I think of believers who are going through difficult times. And it's one from John Newton by the title, These Inward Trials. This is what he writes. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, 
crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? It is in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. At these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Well put. Perhaps Abraham is tempted to ask like we are, we are your people, Lord. Why is it that we are going through these trials? And the Lord would answer, so that you will find your all in me. Don't go looking for the gifts that the Lord has given you and put your entire trust in them. No, trust in the Lord as you seek him with all your heart and he will give you the desires of your heart. A prophecy of suffering. Fourthly, the promise sealed, verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Steve Lawson in his lesson on this particular section shares this little anecdote, anecdote which he says, says this was R.C. Sproul's all-time favorite verse in the Bible. According to him, R.C. wrote, if I was marooned on an island and only had one book, it would of course be the Bible. But if I could only have one verse with me in the, from the entire Bible, it would be Genesis 15, 17. There's a smoking oven, a flaming torch that passes between the two halves that we read about in verse 10. So like me, when I first read that, you're probably left asking yourself, what is such a big deal about a smoking oven and a flaming torch. You see, if you look at verse 18, God has just announced his covenant with Abraham. Uh, the Hebrew word for covenant is the word berit, and it means an alliance or a pledge or, or a promise. But the Hebrew word goes much deeper than that because it's derived from a root which means to cut, to cut. A covenant means to cut. Sometimes we say we cut a deal. Uh, the cutting here has to do with the animals that were cut into two halves or two parts. And the process dictated that the covenanting parties, as I mentioned earlier, were to pass between the two halves and thereby say in essence, may I be torn apart like these animals if I fail to uphold my part of the covenant. We already know in verse 12 that Abram is in a deep sleep. So he is not the one who is passing through in verse 17. And so that leaves only God as the other party in the covenant that is passing through. What Genesis 15, 17 then is, is that it is a theophany. Uh, that is God in a visible form. It's an outward or an external manifestation of the invisible God. Now this was rare in the Old Testament, but not the only example of such a manifestation. Think of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus Chapter 3, for example. Now, what is happening here? What is happening here is that God himself is be moving between those two pieces of animals here. God alone passes between the animals that have been slaughtered. So what are some things that we can draw from this? 
Well, first of all, this highlights the unilateral and one-sided nature of this covenant. It was only God who passed through those dead animals. But this also highlights the level of commitment to which God was involved in this covenant. It's as if God is putting his very life on the line as a guarantee. God was displaying his reliability in the promise he was making to Abraham. In effect, God was saying, if I fail to keep my promise, may I be ripped apart as these animals have been ripped apart. That is a, a stunning understanding of what this text means. Uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary, writes that this was, he say, an acted out curse, a divine self-imprecation guaranteeing that Abraham's descendants would get the land or God would die. And God cannot die. Here's what R.C. Sproul says on this passage. He would cease to be God if he did not fulfill his part of the covenant. He puts his deity on the line. And then he says, what a certainty. He vowed by his own nature. When I am in doubt, I want to read this passage again and again, he says, Abraham does not walk the gauntlet, it is all one-sided. This was a unilateral and unconditional promise that God made, and he sealed it by putting himself on the line. Now, as we sit here, almost 4,000 years since the passing of this event, how do we apply this passage to us? Well, think with me this. The promise to Abraham and his descendants was a physical one to begin with as we think of the land and the descendants, but it also was a spiritual one because remember the third feature of that promise was regarding the spiritual blessings. It was regarding redemption. Here it had to do with the land, but there is a spiritual reality to God's promise, uh, this act of God passing between the slaughtered animals that this spiritual reality is portraying. And the most graphic and the most vivid form that that promise takes is in God taking on a human form and nature. And taking this human nature, he tasted death in the place of his covenant-breaking children. Now that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you and for me. On the cross, the curse fell on him completely. We were all under the curse of the law, because not a single one of us could keep the law. But what does the Lord do? What does our Lord do? Listen to Paul as he writes in Galatians 3 verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was his sacrifice that accomplished salvation for you and for me. If you're sitting here and if you're a child of God, that is what the God of heaven and earth did for you and me. This was the very purpose for which he came. The angel, remember, said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1:21. Jesus died in the place of sinners such as you and me as our substitute, so that we would be declared righteous before this holy God. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
How can you be saved? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. His death guarantees that your sins will not be held against you. It guarantees that God will declare you as righteous because the one who died for you was completely righteous. From start to finish, salvation is the work of God. If you're a child of God, you can say with Paul, he foreknew us, he predestined us, that is our destiny was decided by him so that, he could be, so that we could become conformed to the image of his, of his son. He called us and he justified us. No wonder this is a favorite verse for many, including R.C. God put his very life on the line to guarantee the fulfillment of the promise. What a savior we have. What a God we have. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of creation. He is the sovereign God of history. But he is also a God who is long-suffering and patient, whose kindness reached you and it reaches all those who are lost. And he sent his son 2,000 years back and he let 2,000 years go by so that you and I could be born and he extended it so that you and I could be born again. The promise sealed. That brings us to this last section. The promise again stated. The promise again stated. Notice verse 18 to verse 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Raphaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. You see, the Lord gives us uh, the cultural dimensions of the land that he is promising. He names 10 people groups who are currently occupying this land who will be removed because of their iniquity and that land then will be given to the descendants of Abraham. Uh, this is, by the way, the first time the word covenant in verse 18 is used in connection with Abraham. God cut a covenant with Abraham. Uh, the word there, however, is not one where two parties are having an agreement to, uh, to, 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 to do something. It's more of an obligation from one party to another. Abraham has no obligation. Nothing is imposed on him. He's free of any obligation. The only obligation then is on God, which he lays on himself. It's an obligation to fulfill his promises to the descendants of Abraham. Now, because this is not a covenant in its truest sense, many commentators have suggested that we use a broader word here rather than the word covenant. And the only broader word that we can think of is the word Assurance. Assurance. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. As we come to a close, Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise. On what basis could God promise? On his own self. 
And so a better word to understand here is then the word assurance. What a beautiful word that is. He assures Abraham. He guarantees Abraham. A promise again stated. What are some lessons that we can draw from this very quickly as we close our time? I have three things that are related. First of all, God wants believers to feel assured about his promise. God wants believers to feel assured about his promise. There's nothing in this world that will come between you and him. There's no love or no enemies. Uh, There is no individual. There is no powers that can come between you and in him. For if God is for us, who can stand against us? Isn't it Paul who says again in the same chapter, I'm thinking of Romans 8, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God wants believers to feel assured about his promises. Secondly, the assurance rests on God's sure promise, not on our performance. There's nothing that you have done that God would save you except, as Calvin says, contributed to it with your sins. Start to finish, it is all God's work. Because in the end, God is the only one who ultimately receives the glory for all of it. And thirdly and finally, this assurance is confirmed by God's sure word. He has given it to to you and to me. So my prayer for all of us, if you are a child of God, is to rest in the fact that God is the one who wants us to feel assured about his promises. They are not resting on our performance, but on his word. And when we think of these things, the only thing that we can conclude here is to give praise and glory and honor to this great God. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful chapter. Great reminder that there are times when we who have placed our trust in you can spend so much time doubting the promises that you've given. Help us to understand and know you better. As we understand and know you better, we understand and know your character better. And the more we know your character better, the more we come to trust you and love you and praise and worship you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, that he would come to know you even tonight, that he would be moved or transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.